This is the Serious Sita Podcast, Episode 12, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sido, episode 12. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and want to discover the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. In today's class, we're going to discuss the following topics. The Prophet and his companions prepare for the Hijrah. The story of Shu'aib al-Rumi. The Quraysh attempts to stop the migration. The migration of Prophet Muhammad and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. The Prophet's intelligence network and espionage activities. And the story of Suraka ibn Malik. Stay tuned for Serious Sita episode 12. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the this ummah of yours is one ummah and I am your Lord so worship me so the prophet peace and blessing be upon him made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the, the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor they were one ummah and they were a magnificent Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah. Nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'afiru. Wa nu'minu bihi wa natawakulu alayhi wa salatu wa salamu ala sayyidina Muhammad. Rabbi shrahli sadri wa yasidri amri. Today we're going to continue with our seerah class on the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And in today's class we are mostly focusing on the migration the Hijrah, as we mentioned in the last class, we went through the second, the first and second pledges of Al-Aqaba when the migrants from Medina met with Prophet Muhammad Wasallam on two different occasions and pledged to protect him and work with him and fight with him and, you know, fight alongside his, him and all that stuff. Okay. Wa alaikum salam. So now the pledge has been made the agreements have been made. The Medinans, they know their they know their um they know their role and now it's about time to get started with the actual migration. Now the Prophet Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu himself, he couldn't leave just yet. He was the leader of a community, because kind of said like the father of a community, and like any good leader. He wanted to make sure that his followers were safe first. It's kind of, you know, it's the wrong idea if you run out the burning building and your family is still left inside. So he didn't want to do that. He wanted to make sure that all of his followers were safe and were able to get out of, out of Medina, out of Mecca and make it to Medina as much as he could. There were some people whom he couldn't help for various reasons. Their families held them back or they were slaves and they didn't have the freedom to move. But to the best of his ability, he wanted to make sure that his people were safe first before he made the journey himself. And also, he couldn't make the hijrah until Allah gave him the permission to make the hijrah, to make the migration. So he simply made preparations for the hijrah 
and we'll see some of the preparations he made along the way. He talked to Abu Bakr and told Abu Bakr to stay behind and wait until Allah gave him permission to leave. And so Abu Bakr was also waiting for him as well. But everyone else, however, Prophet Muhammad encouraged them and helped them make their migration to Medina. Now, most of the people, they couldn't just pack their bags and leave. Most of them had to sneak out in the dark of night. They had to leave in bits and pieces. Everyone couldn't leave at once. Couldn't be a mass exodus like you see in the old old movies in the United States where you see large caravans of people with, with uh, covered wagons making the trip out west. They couldn't do that in Mecca. They had to leave basically one by one, little by little, in drips and drops. Had they left all at once, the Meccans would have ran up to them and would have stopped them. We saw how they were with them going to Abyssinia. They sent a guy all the way across the Red Sea to a foreign nation to try and bribe a king of a foreign nation to send them back. So you know they would have gone to no no extent. There would have been no extent that they would not have gone to in order to stop them from going to Medina, which was comparatively compared to Abyssinia just down the road. Now, it's really more than that. It's uh, roughly about 300 miles away from Mecca. But still, compared to Abyssinia, it's much closer. So if we can see how determined they were, the Quraysh, to keep the Muslims from making it to Abyssinia, they would have been doubly concerned and even more determined to stop them from making it to Medina. So many people had to leave, and they had to leave in a hurry. And many of them had to leave most of them really had to leave their belongings behind. Some of the Muslims who had who had accepted Islam in Mecca were very wealthy. Some of them had gained a lot of wealth through through uh, commercialism and industry. We know, as we mentioned before, Mecca was a center for for business. It was a central trade route. They did the trade between Syria and Yemen. And many of the Muslims were well-accomplished entrepreneurs and businessmen and had made themselves a lot of wealth. Abu Bakr, Uthman, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, Sa'ad ibn, ibn Abi Waqas, Omar ibn Khattab. Uh, many of them had become very, very wealthy. Talha ibn, ibn Awam, Zubair ibn Ubaidullah. These men had become pretty wealthy or had done well for themselves, for the, for themselves in Mecca. And they had to leave it all behind. They had to leave everything behind in order to make the hijrah, make the migration with Prophet Muhammad And we may not think of it as a big thing, but you can see how difficult it is for some people simply to move to an, another, another city within the same state because they think it's too far away from their kid's school or it's going to bring disruption to their family or they're going to drive an extra 30 minutes to work. People make decisions like that, you know, off of they decide not to move to something, to something that might be better for silly reasons like that. I won't say silly, but inconsequential reasons such as my kid's school and stuff like that. Whereas the companions, the Sahabas, they were leaving behind everything, their families very often and their wealth in order to make the hijrah to Medina. Look at some of the stories of the hijrah. One of the most famous ones, or most interesting ones, is a, sto- is a hijrah of Omar ibn Khattab. 
most of the other companions who left, as I mentioned, even Prophet Muhammad himself, as we'll see later on, had to sneak out of Mecca and make their way across the desert to Medina. Most of the people had to had to sneak out, but not Omar. Omar was not the type to sneak with anything. He put his bow across his back, got his arrows, got his spear and sword, and walked to the Kaaba and told everyone that who and told everyone who was there, if you want to make your wife a widow, and if you want to make your children orphans, and if you want to make your mother sad, then come and try to stop me from making the hijrah. I make I'm leaving right now. Come and try to stop me. Of course, no one was foolish enough to try to stop him. So Omar, he was going to leave with two other people, two other companions going to leave, were going to leave with him. One of the three companions got detained by his family and he was not able to leave. So eventually it was just Omar and Ayash who were making, who were leaving. Ayash was actually the brother of Abu Jal. So they're making, they, they went and left Mecca and they were en route to Medina. Abu Jal finds out that his brother is leaving. So he goes and tracks him down. He has Omar with him now. And Abu Jal knows that he just can't bum rush him and take his brother back by force. And Abu Jal is coming back. Is He met him with a second person, by the way. Abu Jal knows he can't grab Ayash and bring him back home by force. And so he decides to use cunning and trickery instead. He tells Ayash, he tries to hit at the soft part for, for many men with the mother. You know, he tries to bring in mama and gets at get get at his brother's heart by telling him how depressed and how dejected and how sad his mother would be their mother would be she was an old woman by now certainly abu jal himself was fairly old he was about the same age of prophet muhammad sallam and prophet muhammad sallam was in his 50s at this time so he was telling him how sad their mother would be if he left her at such a crucial time he said that her mo- that the mother would he made all these stories about all the things that their mother would do. And Bojal said, our mother's going to, as, as a punishment upon herself for you leaving, she's going to let her hair grow wild and never comb it and never wash it. Omar, however, he was an intelligent person being detached from the situation and knowing that Abu Jal was a cunning person. Omar wasn't falling for that. And Omar told Ayash, don't worry, when the lice gets, get in, when the lice and the insects and bugs get in your mother's hair, she will make time to clean and comb her hair. Babu Jal didn't stop there. He went on to say, as further punishment, she's going to go and lay down in the hot sun and bake herself until you come back and cook herself. Basically, stay in the hot sun until you come back. Omar also saw through this as well. He said, don't worry. When the heat of the of the Meccan sun beats down on her head, she will find shade, as any sensible person would do. But Ayash, he his heart softened. It was his mother after all. And he told Omar that he was just going to go back and see about his mother and he'll come and make the hijrah, make the migration as soon as he could. And so he went back with Abu Jal and his family. 
But before he did that, Omar told him to take his camel. And Omar gave him a camel and said, this camel is well-trained. It will bring you back to Medina. It will bring you to Medina when you're ready. So Ayashi took the, cam- the camel and him and Abu Jal and the other person. I can't remember the person's name. They're going back to Mecca. And Ayash, he's riding on the camel that Omar gave him. While they're walking, Abu Jal, he starts complaining about his leg. And you can imagine Abu Jal, old man in his 50s. He's not really old, but up there, basically, in his 50s, saying, Oh, man, my legs, my knees, this long walk back to Mecca, so hard. Ayash, you have such a lively spirit to camel. Come on, let me get a ride. Let me just ride on her for a little while. Let me just help your brother out here. Let me just get a, a few minutes on this camel just to rest my weary bones. And Ayash, as we can see, he's a bit of a soft-hearted person. And it is his brother. So he gets down and he lets Abu Jal get on the camel. And we all know, you can guess what happens after that. As soon as he hops off the camel, Abu Jal and the other man pounce on Ayash, tie him up, and take him back to Mecca in bonds. Everything, all the stories about the mother and the camel and all that, all that was just a ruse to get Ayash back to Mecca. There was another person who made the Hijrah as well. This man was named Shuaib al-Rumi. Rumi is, means the Roman. He was from Syria, which at that time was under the, the rule of the Byzantine Empire, which, were, which was the vestiges of the Eastern Roman Empire after the Roman Empire split into two. Shuaib al-Rumi, he had come to Mecca many years earlier. He was an outsider. As I mentioned, he was European. He was of European descent, what we would call Caucasian today. He was of European descent and he lived in Syria. And he came to Mecca and he was also a very good businessman, a very good entrepreneur. And he became wealthy while in Mecca. He became very wealthy building up his own business. And he had gained himself a little bit of stature and nobility within the Meccan society. But he had also accepted Islam. He had become Muslim. He had accepted Islam. And he was also preparing to make the Hijrah. When the Quraysh found, about this, found out about this, they ran a guilt trip on him. They said, oh, you came to our, our home. You came to our city as a beggar. You didn't have any money. You didn't have any wealth, no companions. You didn't have any property. And you came here. You make money off of us. You made money in our society. You let you marry our daughters. You do all these great things. And now you want to leave us. They ran a big guilt trip on him. And Shoaib al-Rumi, even though he was wealthy and he had some, st- some status in the society, he was still an outsider. He was still an outsider in a land of clans and families and tribes. People who were outsiders were the weakest of all, and the, or at least the, vo- the most vulnerable of all, because they did not have a large tribe or even a small tribe to go to bat for them. So Joaib, he had to wheel and deal his way out of this. He was a very wealthy man, and he bargained with the Quraysh. Eventually, he told them that they could have all of his wealth if they would let him go. And they accepted that agreement, and they confiscated all of his wealth. And so Shuaib al-Rumi, a wealthy man, wound up going to 
Mecca, going to traveling to Medina penniless and broke. Another story of migration is Salman al-Jundub. Salman al-Jundub was an elderly man, but he had accepted Islam in his later years. He also wanted to make the hijrah, but he was too weak to make the tra- to do the travel on his own. He was too weak and elderly. And so he had his two sons pick him up and carry him to Medina. They I suppose they didn't own a camel. So they or he was too old, maybe he was too old to hold himself up on a camel. Allah knows best. But his sons were had picked him up and they were en route to carry him the three hundred plus miles to Medina. Three hundred miles is like from here to Jackson, well, I'm living in Atlanta. All of you are not living in Atlanta. But for you who do live in Atlanta, it's like from Atlanta to Jackson, Mississippi, something like that. It's very long. Anyway, they began to carry him, but evidently this was probably too much strain for him also. I mean, being carried by two or three young men is not really easy either, not for 300 miles. And he wound up dying along the way. Also, just to make note of this, most of the people, the Muslims who had made the migration to Abyssinia, they had stayed in Abyssinia all this time, and they only began to come back once they heard about the impending migration to to Medina. And so once the Muslims who had migrated to Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia, once they heard about the migration to Medina and that the Prophet ﷺ was setting up a new establishment, a new government, a new Muslim land in Medina, most of them came back from Abyssinia, but not all. As we'll see later, Ali's brother, Jafar ibn Abi Talib, he stayed in, in Abyssinia all the way up until after the Battle of the Trench which is roughly five years into the Hijrah. He stayed in Abyssinia for a total of 15 years. He was there for a long time. But most of the Muslims who went to Abyssinia, they met with the Prophet Muhammad in Medina, or they made, made their way back to Medina, or back to Arabia, actually, after the news of the Hijrah came. The Hijrah took place in the 13th year of the Prophet's mission. And you hear this many times. It took the Prophet a total of 23 years to complete his mission. 13 years before the Hijrah, 10 years afterwards. In this thir- in this 13th year, it took the Muslims of Mecca roughly, roughly one year to complete the migration. So they didn't all, they couldn't all leave at once. As I mentioned, they had to choose the best time for them to leave. But eventually they all left, who could leave that is, with the exception of Prophet Muhammad, Abu Bakr, and Ali. They were the last ones left of those who had the freedom and the ability to leave. And it took them about the people who, the Muhajirun, Muhajirun comes from the word hijr, which means migration. Muhajirun, the plural of muhajir. Muhajirun, those who made the migration. It took them roughly about a year to clear out of Mecca. So within, by the end of the 13th year, 
all that remained in Mecca was Abu Bakr, Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and Ali, of those who had the freedom to move. The Quraysh, however, were really surprised at how quickly things had happened. Because the Muslims did not just all up and leave at once, people just left here and there in bits and pieces. The Quraysh woke up one day and suddenly found 10% of their population gone. I'm, I don't know exactly the number, but I'm just making up the number. There are about roughly about 200 uh, muhajidun, 200 people who accepted Islam in Mecca, uh, give or take, you know, 25 or so. But Mecca, Mecca as a city probably wasn't more than three or 4,000 people. I'm kind of, I'm just guessing at the way cities were back then, human population. The largest city in the world at that time would have been a city like Constantinople. It would have had maybe a million people in it at most. So, and it's unlikely Mecca would have been more than five to 10,000 people at the most. 10,000 might be kind of pushing it. So cities were not as big as we, as we have them right now. And there weren't too many Constantinople's out there either. So just give you a miss my own rough estimate. You know, I have no real facts to back it up. As far as the numbers, the population of uh, Mecca or or Medina at the time. Well, I do have numbers from for Medina, but for Mecca, I don't really have numbers. I'm just doing a rough estimate, so you can take it or leave it if you want. But the number of Muhajirun is estimated to be somewhere around 200, give or take 25. I've heard numbers as low as 150 and as high as 275. I prefer to split the middle, somewhere between 175 and 225 is my guess. And Allah, of course, ultimately knows best. So the Quraysh woke up basically one morning and found roughly 5 to 10% of their population gone. And it just dawned on them because people weren't leaving all at once. They left little by little. They snuck out at the, in the middle of the night. And so they woke up. You can imagine how Pharaoh woke up back in the time of Musa, a.s. They woke up to find all of the Bani Israel, all their slaves gone. And they're like, Mahada, what is this? And the Quraysh woke up one day, suddenly realizing that a good chunk of their population is gone. And they are really upset about this. They're absolutely upset. You know, what different way we can sometimes do. They're really upset about this. And they decide they're going to go and get the guy who started this all, who brought all this trouble into their lives, who refused to negotiate, who refused to compromise, who refused to see the light from their perspective, who refused to be reasonable, whom they have tried everything from harsh to soft methods, bribery, they tried threat of death, they tried good and evil to get him to change his mind and be a little more reasonable. He just wouldn't listen and now they wanted to get rid of him once and for all. And so they came up with a, with a plan. They got the leaders of the Quraysh who were really upset to see so much of their population gone. For one thing, well, let's look at some of the reasons why they were upset. For one, the word would get out about how they treated their people. They were probably upset about their, or concerned about their reputations. But even more so, the Quraysh knew that Prophet Muhammad 
was a pretty influential person, very charismatic. And if the people, if people outside of Mecca were able to hear his message, if they weren't able to control his message within within Mecca, remember in Mecca the Quraysh were able to control the message a little bit. They could put pressure on those who converted. They could spread lies about Prophet Muhammad wasallam. They could meet. They could uh, intercept the pilgrims coming for the Hijrah. I'm sorry, coming for the Hajj for the pilgrimage to the Kaaba. They could intercept them and talk to them and and sway them against Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu before he got a chance to talk to them. But outside of Medina, outside of Mecca, all bets were off. They had no control over him outside of Mecca. And if he could gather up 200 followers in 10 years, 13 years actually, within Mecca, who knows what he could do outside of Mecca when he was on his own and we had we had nothing, no encumbrances, nothing holding him back. Also, they knew that his followers were committed I mean, they put some of the biggest social pressure you could put on people and people, most of the Muslims, none of them actually ever turned, ever turned away from Islam. The closest was Ahmad ibn Yasir and he did so under pressure and he immediately recanted, he went immediately to Prophet Muhammad and recanted his statement and begged for forgiveness and was sad about it. But remember, he saw his parents slaughtered before his very eyes. So that was, gotta give him, cut him some slack for that. But, for the vast majority of them, they didn't even they didn't even go to that length, and even he did not do that. Um, Ahmad ibn Yasir ibn Ahmad I got the names back. Yasir ibn Ahmad didn't do it out of out of conviction. He did that simply to save his life, and he was probably in a state of shock after seeing his parents killed before him. So they knew that the people were committed, and if they if the followers of Muhammad Sallam could follow, could be that committed. Through all the pressure they put upon them, Lord knows what they would do when they don't have that pressure on them. Furthermore, and this was probably something that was even more concerning to them, he now had the Aus and the Khazraj, or the Hatfield and McCoy, the Hatfields and McCoys of the Arabian Peninsula, these feuding families who were now united behind Prophet Muhammad, who had years and decades and generations of fighting experience and probably some zeal for fighting. You don't fight for generations and decades and not become pretty professional at it. You don't do this stuff for years and decades and generations and not perhaps maybe even learn to like it a little bit. And as we see, the Aus and the Khazraj, they were no cowards. We'll see this later on, but they were some pretty brave fellows, both men and women. They were very brave and very very sure of their fighting abilities. And the feud of the Aus and the Khazraj was well known throughout Arabia. And when the Quraysh saw how they were able to unite under Prophet Muhammad, this gave them pretty good reason to be afraid. They had very good reason to be concerned with this. Another thing about Medina was that it was close to the trade routes. Now, Medina was not a, a merchant city. The people in Medina made their living by agriculture. They were not merchants, but still, it was close to the trade routes. It was along the trade routes between Syria and Yemen. And while Medina at the time was too small and the Aus and Khazraj were too busy fighting each other to really pose a threat 
before Islam, that is, to any caravans. Now that they are probably at war with with the people of Mecca, with the Quraysh, there's a good chance they may be able to attack Meccan caravans and hurt them economically. The Meccans eventually had to find ways around Mecca, around Medina. And we'll get into that in the next session, inshallah, when we start on life of Prophet Muhammad after the Hijrah. So for all these reasons, the Quraysh were really concerned about this migration. And they finally came to the conclusion that they had to resort, resort to the nuclear option. You know, the nuclear option is like the last thing on the table, the thing that nobody wants to do, but we just got to do it. The Quraysh had come to the conclusion that they had to resort to their own form of the nuclear option, which was to kill Prophet Muhammad once and for all. They decided they just had to get rid of him right now. This was it. Let's stop this thing now. No more negotiations. No more no more uh, consultations, no more bribes, no more threats, no more pleas. Let's get rid of this guy once and for all. But they had the problem, of course, that if any one tribe killed him, if any one person killed him, that person would have to deal with his clans, Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib. They would have to deal with those two. And that's not something they wanted. no one wanted to really take on on their own. And so they sat... And the leaders of Quraysh, they sat around and they were pondering how we're going to do this. And eventually they came up with an idea. Get one person from every single clan, give them a sword, and they all take and they all kill Prophet Muhammad and all attack him at the same time. Walaikum They all attack him at the same time, and there is no way Hashem or Abdul Muttalib, the clans of Banu Hashim Abdul Muttalib could do anything against all of them. They would just have to pay, pay the blood money, which is like um, blood money is recompense or I don't say retaliation, but recompense for killing someone un- unjustly. And with all the clans participating, all of them could, could put the money together to pay for the blood money and it wouldn't be a big deal. And that was said that would protect everyone from going into war. To them, it was a win-win situation. You know, they could split the, split the uh, the burden of wealth amongst the different clans. They could split the blame from amongst everybody else. You know, they were the leaders of the Quraysh, so they didn't really have to worry about it. And Banu Hashim couldn't really do anything because they couldn't fight the entire city of Mecca at the same time. They couldn't fight all of the Quraysh. They weren't that powerful. And so, to the Quraysh, to the leaders of the, of the Quraysh, this seemed like a pretty good idea. And so they made up their minds that they were going to just go forward with this plan and send their one representative from every major clan to Prophet Muhammad's house and kill him at the same time. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of course, knew of their plans and sent Jibreel, the angel Jibreel, with the message, with the warning to Prophet Muhammad of what they were doing. And so Rasulullah sallallahu he they planned and he counterplanned against their plan. He had Ali the plan and this is a famous story I'm sure you've all heard it. But he had Ali take his place in his bed at nighttime on the night of the 
of the dastardly deed when the when the forces of evil when the forces of darkness came to his house to to kill him he had ali sleep in his bed and prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi snuck out and according to to one story as he was sneaking out he was walking right past them but allah covered their eyes where they could not see him and he snuck right past them and saw all of their faces one by one of the people who were seeking who were planning on killing him but allah made it so that they could not see him and rasulullah escaped and made his way on to abu bakr's house and of course the quraysh eventually they bust down the door and jumped into the house to kill prophet muhammad and instead of seeing the prophet they saw ali and you would think that why didn't they just kill ali well that really wasn't part of their plan you know if you hit men they try not to have collateral damage and these guys were really not much more than hitmen just paid assassins well they weren't paid but they were just hitmen basically they try not to have collateral damage and so ali wasn't on the hit list ali wasn't he wasn't stopping them from killing prophet muhammad so he was just they just got tricked and so they were confused and these guys weren't really professionals anyway I mean, they weren't like the Aus and Khazraj. The Aus and Khazraj, they were, they were trained warriors. I mean, they, Allah knows best, but they probably would have been fooled by this. But the Quraysh, for all their bluster, the Quraysh were really just rich boys who were, who played at war. They weren't really serious warriors. And we see later on how they got their, their butts kicked a couple of times by Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, uh, uh, in the, after the Hijrah. The Quraysh were not the best of warriors. They didn't really go to war too often. They made the money. They had the Kaaba. They live, compared to the rest of the Arabian Peninsula, they were preppies. They were, um, you know, fairly rich, wealthy, lived comfortable lives. So they weren't the most astute warriors in the world. Now, they learned later on after getting their tails whipped by the Prophet and by the Muslims after a while. But in the beginning, they weren't too good at this whole warfare thing. Prophet Muhammad Sassam, he snuck out. And he made it to Abu Bakr's home. And him and Abu Bakr, they had already made plans. They had already made preparations. They knew exactly what they wanted to do. And they set out on the journey to Medina. And they set out on foot, basically. They didn't take a camel. Uh, they had the, they had a camel that was carrying their, their property. But that was going to come later. Or they had sent it ahead. I've heard both stories. But their belongings that were coming on, on by camel... They were sent separately. Actually, for Prophet Muhammad Ali handled that later on. But for now, Abu Bakr is now the 14th year. Abu Bakr and Prophet Muhammad they were making their way on to Medina. Now, when the Quraysh found out they had been duped, they had been tricked and fooled, they immediately mobilized a search party. They immediately mobilized a hunting party to go and hunt the Prophet and Abu Bakr down. And they put up a bounty on his head even. They say any they put a bounty and they spread it out um, to everyone who was in the area, even the other clans and tribes outside of Mecca, to be on the lookout for these two men. They get left a, they gave a description for them, gave them their name, told them where they're from, said they're from the Quraysh, and people could tell from the accent where they're where they're from. And I warned them that go and find these people and if you find them we'll give you 100 camels 
And 100 camels at that time, you consider like a camel, like a car today. We don't really need 100 cars. But you can imagine if a good car costs $30,000 today, 100 times that is $300,000. $300,000 today would get people to do some pretty stupid things. So for $300,000, you know, you can pretty much get a lot of people to go on a hunting party with you to hunt somebody down. So for 300 camels in the time of the uh, Prophet uh, Prof Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, a lot of wealth right there. That can set somebody up for a long time. So you can imagine how excited people were to hear about that and how anxious all the great hunters and, and bounty hunters and trackers of the area were. So now these two men, Abu Bakr and Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, they really had, they had a full-blown manhunt on them. We can say APB. They had an all-points bulletin on them and everyone in the area was looking for them. And the only way they could be safe was to make it to this city, this small little village, 300 miles away. And they had to do most of it on foot. They took refuge in a cave and there are many famous stories about this cave. Some of them true, some not so true. You've heard a story of um, when they were in the cave. This is one of the stories. I'll go through um, one of the stories because it is a famous story, but from what I've heard, it's not true. I haven't seen any um, any proof of it. Forgive my, my phone. It's a uh, home phone, not my cell phone. Can't do anything about that one. Anyway, so they were, they took refuge in this cave. And one of the stories is that while they were hiding in the cave, the Quraysh were so close that Abu Bakr and the Prophet Muhammad could see their feet as they passed by the cave. And I imagine this cave was not a cave that we imagine maybe in the side of a mountain. Perhaps it's a cave that actually went down into the ground. So Allah knows best. We got to use your imagination of how that was, where they could see their feet, where they could see the feet of the Quraysh walking by. So it's probably more something more like a burrow or a hole in the ground that they were hiding in. Allah knows best how it actually was. But as one story says, they were about to, the Quraysh were about to look into the cave, but Allah sent a spider to build a web and two doves to build a nest. And when they saw that, the Quraysh said, oh, we have a web and a nest. They can't possibly be here. Let's go look elsewhere. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, I think that's a kind of a really fantastic story, very lovely story, but it's not true. You know, um, really a web. A lot knows best, but from what I know, from what I've been told, that story is not true. But it's a very nice story, though. Very nice story and all, but it's not true. A story that is true, however, is that while they were in the cave, Rasulullah fell asleep and he rested his, his head on Abu Bakr's lap. While he was resting, um, a, a scorpion or a spider, some poisonous insect or poisonous bug. I know spiders aren't insects. Don't lecture me on that. Say so a scorpion came by and stung him in the foot. And it caused him great pain. But because he didn't want to wake the Messenger of Allah, he sat there and suffered in pain as his foot flamed up and swelled up. When Rasulullah found out about him, he welcomed me, found out about it. He applied some saliva to it, some of his own saliva, and that took the pain and the swelling away. 
eventually the Quraysh, they continued on with their manhunt. They left They left from the area of the cave. Now, the part where Abu Bakr said he could see their feet, that part is true. There is uh, authentic relations, narrations about that part. The part about the, the spider web and the dove, that part is where there's tremendous doubt. So they stayed in the cave for about three days while this hunt was going on. Meanwhile, back in Mecca, Ali, the Quraysh finally got their heads together and they knew that even though Ali was not the man they wanted, perhaps he could tell them. Ali suffered a little bit for his participation in their deception, in the deception of the Quraysh. They grabbed him and dragged him to the Kaaba and they began to beat him and pummel him and try to force him to give away the whereabouts of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But I'm really not sure how, Ali, how much Ali really knew, if he even knew about the cave. Everybody knew he was heading for Medina. That wasn't really a secret. But nonetheless, Ali held firm. He didn't tell them anything. And all they could do was just beat him as much as they wanted to. But they didn't kill him. Next, they went on to, Prophet, to uh, Abu Bakr's house. And they found his daughter Asma there. Asma had become Muslim, but she had not made the migration as yet. She was a sister of Aisha, radiallahu anha. And they also questioned her. And she also, whether she knew or not, Allah knows best, but she didn't say she couldn't tell them anything. She either knew and she didn't tell them, or she didn't know and she didn't tell them. Either way, the Quraysh were happy about that. And they slapped her around a couple of times, upset that she wouldn't give them the information that they needed. You can see these two families, the family of Rasulullah and the family of Abu Bakr, they suffered a lot for, for the cause of Islam. We'll see more of it later on. But these two families suffered a lot before and after the Prophet's death. Uh, very interesting things happened later on to the sons and grandsons of both of these men, Prophet Muhammad and Abu Bakr. Finally, Abu Bakr had already hired a guide. He had already hired someone beforehand to help the him and, and uh, Prophet Muhammad Sassam make their way because they weren't really familiar with the area and they weren't traveling. They had to stay away from the main travel routes because that's where all the searches were. So they couldn't go along the normal methods. So they had hired a guide, a man named Abdullah ibn, ibn Mu'akit. He was not Muslim. While they were in the cave, however, before they met up with their guide, Abu Bakr's son, Abdullah, would come to meet them and give them news while they were hiding in the cave. And they would pass on news about the whereabouts of the Quraysh and how the search was going and the migration and how things were going on back in Mecca and whatever news he could give them. And so we can see the beginning of the Prophet setting up a very effective intelligence network this was just the beginning of it. But Prophet Muhammad became very capable at using intelligence, espionage, spying. I don't want to say underhanded methods, but indirect methods to learn about the whereabouts and the activities of his enemy. He was extremely good at planning. You know, he made some mistakes. He made some mistakes. He wasn't always 100% right, but he was very good at planning. And he used something that the Quraysh evidently weren't very good at, which was intelligence or espionage. And there's a famous hadith, Rasulullah says that um, 
War is deception. And he was very good at outsmarting his enemies. It may have been natural intelligence, natural ability, but certainly he was also guided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and many of his actions. But he was also a very intelligent man. Despite him not being able to read, he didn't just leave things up to chance. We hear many people speak about depending upon Allah. We should do that to Allah. We should rely upon Allah. That doesn't mean we don't use the gifts that Allah has given us. And Rasulullah had a very good gift of planning, of preparation, of thinking two, three, sometimes even five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten steps ahead of his ahead of his enemies. And he was very good at outsmarting them and, and outwitting them. And this was just the beginning of it. You having this the uh, Abu Bakr's son come to the cave to pass on information while the rest of the Quraysh are wandering around the desert looking for him. Eventually, they leave the cave after three days with their, with their guide. So the guide made sure that the coast was clear, that nobody was around. And they went with their guide on to Medina. But it didn't happen quite so quickly and easily. I want to relay one story. There was one tracker, one hunter, one bounty hunter who did catch up to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Abu Bakr. After they had left the cave, a man from Quraysh named Suraka ibn Malik, he was part of the, the bounty hunters and the hunting party that were hoping to get their hands on that quarter of a million dollars of wealth, 100 camels. We're going to say a quarter of a million dollars, but you could call it whatever you want to do it. He wanted that money or those camels just as much as anybody else. He knew that I could set him up for life. And he was also part of that group of people, which was pretty much the entire Arabian Peninsula, looking for Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Abu Bakr. And he saw them as they were making the, the, their way on to Medina. He saw two people in the distance. And he was, he was riding a very fast horse. And he saw the two men walking. And he saw them and he smacked his horse in the rump and immediately started charging after them. And you can imagine this man on his horse, Arabian stallions, you know, some of the fastest, well-bred horses in the world, racing across the desert, going after these two men, really three men, but the guy is probably a little, bit, a little bit further ahead. These two men walking across the desert with no weapons and, you know, nothing to stop him. He, he could, you could just imagine how happy he was and how anxious he was that he rode his horse as fast as he could across the desert to catch up with them. And he's bearing down on them and bearing down and bearing down. And just as he's about to get closer to them, the horse stumbles. It sinks into the sand and stumbles and Sudaka comes flying off the horse and the horse goes tumbling and everything. And Sudaka is just bewildered. And he's like, of all the times to stumble, this is now the time you stumble. He's just upset about his horse stumbling. But he knows his horse is fast. And the two men, they don't seem to have noticed him yet. They are still walking away the distance. So he gets up, dusts himself off, gets his horses up, probably curses his horse a couple of times. Who knows? Hops on the horse and resumes his chase. And he's charging after them again and charging and charging and charging. He had this trustworthy horse that never failed him before. And for a second time, the horse stumbles in the sand and Sudaka goes flying off the horse and the horse goes tumbling into the sand and 
rider and horse goes two separate directions and <laughs> you can imagine Sudoka is really just like what the heck is going on right now and his horse who may have never stumbled before now has stumbled twice in less than 20 minutes and so he's really concerned now and he's thinking that maybe maybe I should leave this guy alone but then he thinks about that quarter million dollars those 100 camels and the greed gets the best of him so he grabs his horse again probably curses his horse out a couple more times, hops on the horse and goes charging after the prophet of Abu Bakr again. And for a third time, the horse stumbles and Sudaka goes flying off in one direction. The horse goes flying off in another direction. And Sudaka is now just, okay, forget this. Something's not right here. You know, he barely escaped death three times. And now he realizes that he keeps doing this this horse is going to wind up killing him. So now he knows he just can't keep chasing after him. And so his heart changes and he gets back on his horse and he does go after Prophet Muhammad again, but this time his intention is different. This time his intention is to warn them. And this time the horse does not stumble. And he catches up with Abu Bakr and Prophet Muhammad and he tells him about what's going on. He tells him also his, his initial intention was to capture them and take them back to Mecca as well. But that he wasn't going to do that and he was going to let them go. And Rasulullah he asked them to not just let them go, but also to throw the Quraysh off their trail and to give them false information about where they're headed and to basically guide the Quraysh along a different route. And Sudaka agrees to this. And Prophet Muhammad tells Sudaka something very, very surprising. He tells Sudaka ibn Malik that for his good deed of helping them out and to make up for the hundred camels that he lost out on, he will receive gold bangles from Khosros, who was the, the title, which was a title for the emperor of Persia. That you will receive gold bangles for, from Persia and Sudaka is like dumbfounded he's like okay whatever you say <laughs> like you're struggling to get across the desert you you have hardly a penny to your name I could really capture you now if I wanted to you're telling me that you're going to give me gold bangles from Persia really so Sudaka he he does he brushes it off and he's not really even thinking about that he just thinks, okay, I guess the stories about this guy being crazy, maybe I guess they're true. But he keeps his word and he goes back and he does throw the Kodesh off the trail, says that he went in a certain direction where they were, but he didn't see them. And here news they went in this direction and he just throws shade all over the place. These guys are just going all over the place. He, he does, he's effective in throwing the Kodesh off his trail. About 20 years later, 20 years after this event, the Muslim armies under the Khilafat of Omar ibn Khattab, they finally crush the vestiges of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire, the, the Persian royal family has to go into hiding and goes running off into the hills of modern day Iran. And the Muslims capture what we now know of today as Iraq and Iran and parts of Afghanistan as well basically Persia. They conquer the Persian Empire 
and Sa'ad ibn, ibn Abi Waqas, who is by now a, a big general, a major general in the Muslim army, he sends heaps and mounds of gold and wealth and riches back to Umar ibn Khattab, who is the leader of the Muslim world. He's a Khalifa. He sends all these wealth and all these riches from the conquered Persian territory back to Medina. And after, at this time, of course, Mecca had become Muslim. Everyone had accepted Islam, including Sudaka ibn Malik. Sudaka ibn Malik was now living in Medina. He, was, he had become Muslim after the conquest of, of Mecca, which took place about 14 years before the conquest of Persia. He is called into Omar's court, into his, uh, we'll say court for now because I don't, can't think of a better word. Omar summons him and he wants to share the, the wealth from the conquest of Persia with the Muslims of Medina. And so he's giving out the wealth to everybody in the uh, Muslims of Medina. And eventually Sadaqa's turn. And what do you suppose Sadaqa gets in his, in his hand as part of his wealth? He receives golden bracelets from Persia. And he had totally forgot about the promise from Prophet Muhammad Sassam many years earlier. He hadn't even thought about it. He had completely forgot about once the golden, those golden bracelets were in his hand, everything comes back in a rush of memory. And he remembers everything. And he's dumbfounded and bewildered that everything that Rasulullah had told him so many years earlier had actually come true. And from the stories that I've read, Sudaka, he was touched by it. He was, of course, moved. He was Muslim by now. He believed in the message of Allah, the messenger of Allah. But he couldn't keep the bracelets himself. He couldn't keep the wealth that Omar had given himself. He gave it away in charity. He gave it all away in charity. But the point remains that the prophecy from Prophet Muhammad did come true. And Sudaka did wind up with bracelets from Persia. We're going to stop there for now, inshallah. If there are any questions, now would be a good time to, to ask them. We will complete the migration of Rasulullah and Abu Bakr next class, inshallah. Wa'iyakum. Next class, inshallah, we will complete the, the story of the migration. And we'll probably have to take a break a little bit after that. For a couple of weeks, I believe um, the entire website is going down for a while. Well, Sister Amira can explain that to you. But we'll probably take a break after after we complete the story of the migration to Medina, and we'll resume most likely, um, most likely after Eid al-Fitr. I am going to be here for next class, and yeah, next class will probably be the last class. Next up will probably be the last class for now until after Eid al-Fitr. It will resume. We'll start again with the Prophet's life in Medina <clears throat> after the Hijrah, inshallah, after Eid al-Fitr. So we have one more class to complete the, the, um, before Mecca, inshallah, before the Hijrah. Uh, sister is asking, sister is asking about the Quraysh. Now I say the Quraysh were preppy. Now I really mean the um yeah, they were primarily older men. When I say older, remember the average lifespan for people back then was probably maybe in the mid forties. 
You know, people didn't really live much longer than that. Think about all of the prophet's children died before he died. He lived into his 60s. And most of his children, except for Fatima, died before he did. So people didn't live that long back then. The average lifespan may have been about in the 40s or so, maybe even less. And most of the people who were enemies of Prophet Muhammad were actually around his same age or a little bit older. So they were older men. They were established men. And they were the leaders of the Quraysh. The, you know, in tribal societies, it's the older men. In most societies, the older men who tend to run things. And they were older men. They weren't going to be really young men having uh, too much power and control. So most likely, the um, not most likely, definitely, people like Abu Sufyan, Abu Jal, Abu Lahab, the, enemy, the main enemies of Prophet Muhammad Sassam were older men. They weren't young by any means. They were definitely older, and they had lived a long, a long enough time <clears throat> to amass a bit of wealth. There were no wars in Mecca. Mecca didn't participate in wars. The last war they had before the Prophet's migration to Medina, the closest thing they got to a war was when Abraha came with the army of the of the elephants to destroy the Kaaba. And they didn't even fight at that time. Allah sent birds to destroy that army. So people didn't really, the Meccans didn't really participate in a bunch of wars. They had a few, you know, inter-fighting between each other when, you know, a little, you know, a little dust-up would come up between the clans. But it was nothing like the Aus and the Khazraj who lived to fight before Islam. But the Quraysh, they didn't have long-running feuds like that. They had disagreements and rivalries. The clan of Banu Hashim, which was a clan of uh, Prophet Muhammad and the clan of Abu Jal, which is Banu Mustalik, I believe, and definitely Banu Umayyah, which was a clan of Abu Sufyan and Uthman. They were rivalries within Mecca as far as most nobility and the most honor, but they weren't at a full-out war with each other. Not by any means. Okay. So the um so the so the leaders of the Quraysh were not well experienced in war. I mean a lot of stories of Sita they don't really go into this, but Yeah, it was just a lot of, it was a lot of verbal talk. Now they did have enough authority to persecute people now. They did have enough authority to kill people. I mean, it doesn't take much to pull out a sword and kill someone or stab someone with a spear. They could still do that. They had money to hire people to do these same things also. They had slaves. They were wealthy men. They had slaves and stuff. I mean, I wouldn't say verbal debating. I wouldn't say verbal verbal debating. I would just say that um, because they didn't really, they couldn't really debate with Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu They tried, but when he would recite the Quran and and bring about the the stupidity of them worshiping stones and rocks and stuff like that, that kind of lost the debate at that point in time. But they were definitely fighting Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu as far as trying to persecute him and his followers. But they were not a full, they did not have a professional army. These guys were not professional fighters. Remember, they rarely ever had to worry about anyone attacking their caravans because of their position in the Arabian Peninsula as custodians of the Kaaba and the most noble clan, the Quraysh was the most noble clan in the Arabian Peninsula. They didn't really have to worry about anyone messing with their with their um, caravans and stuff like that. So they didn't really have 
a whole bunch of experience in fighting. And this is just from my reading of it. I mean, there's just no records of anyone invading Mecca except for Abdullah and the, ele- and the you're the elephant. And until they start going to war with Prophet Muhammad, so there weren't too many wars. There was a little bit of fighting within themselves, but the fighting at that time, it wasn't full-fledged warfare. It wasn't nothing like the Aus and the Khazraj where, you know, they were fighting for generations and generations, Hatfield and McCoy and McCoy type thing. It wasn't like that. And also this generation of Prophet Muhammad, so they were older men. They weren't great fighters, no. You know, they're great merchants, very good. Um, they're cunning people. They were intelligent, but they weren't. Um, that's part of the reason. I mean, still outnumbered. This is said that would explain why they lost the Kimba against the Prophet. That was part of it. They were, especially in the Battle of Badr, which we'll get to uh, the next session, inshallah. Not the next class, the next session when we switch over to the life of Prophet Muhammad after Hijra. They, um, the Battle of Badr, the uh, Quraysh seriously underestimated. They did not know what they were getting into. They had seriously underestimated. They thought this was going to be a, a, a romp, you know, a, a play in the park. They had brought dancing girls and food and they were planning on having a festivity and the Muslims on the other hand they were, they were planning with warfare they were planning they had sharpened their swords and they were getting ready for war they the Quraysh were thinking this is going to we're going to have some fun and and eat funnel cakes and look at the girls and stuff and maybe along the way we'll go ahead and crush these Muslims the Muslims however they had suffered through 13 years of persecution they had the Aus and the Khazraj who were once again professional fighters who did know how to fight and they were fighting for their survival because if they lost, that would be the end of their society. So the Muslims were taking this thing seriously. And so in the Battle of Badr, yes, the Quraysh were definitely in the wrong mindset and they got crushed in that in that battle. They were annihilated, basically. And we'll get into the details of that later on. The Battle of Uhud, they learned their lesson a little bit and they took a little bit more serious in the Battle of Uhud. And they changed their tactics a little bit and they still were getting beat until things happened and turned the tide a little bit. But you can tell the difference in the strategy between the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Ahud. The Quraysh learned a big lesson between those two battles. They learned how serious this thing was. In the Battle of the Trench, they took it even a step further. And really, we're now for the mercy of Allah. We're just in pure numbers in the Battle of the Trench, which is the third battle between, battle between the Muslims and the uh, pagans of Quraysh. Were it not for the mercy of Allah, in sheer numbers, the Quraysh would have defeated the Muslims and wiped out Medina. But Allah decreed for other things to happen. And so that didn't happen. And I don't want to give away all the goods now. I want to wait till the class comes. So we'll, you know, I'm sure most of the stories you probably know already. But still, I want to wait till the class happens. And we'll get into the details of it. I mean, I'm trying to be dramatic here, right? So I want to wait until that time comes, inshallah, so we can build up to the drama because there are a lot of things that come along on the outside of it that help to explain everything you're welcome Mayakum. but yeah the Quraysh were not professional fighters they weren't very good at fighting they weren't warriors or anything like that not at this time they learned their lesson after the battle of Badr but in the beginning they weren't really warriors any other questions <laughs> 